Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, at long last, unlimited data plans are coming to Canada, but they come with some strings attached. The House of Commons killed and then unanimously accepted a motion calling on the government to end veteran homelessness. Why is it so hard to solve this problem? Also, a new study on the dangers of so-called stalkerware. How easy is it to track someone and does the law need to step in? Plus, new research shows that low levels of THC are not linked to an increased crash risk. Are our legal levels too low? Well, up until now, it's been a glaring absence on the Canadian telecom landscape. Why is it that we have no option when it comes to unlimited data? You see the commercials on U.S. television all the time. It's certainly something that Americans have the option to choose, and telecom customers in other countries do as well. Things may be about to change. Rogers, now Bell, planning to roll out unlimited data packages. Or in this report here from Global's Jordan Armstrong. For Kyle Chang, one phone just isn't enough. Two devices, two data plans, and he's already blown his monthly cap. What do you think of the data plans in Canada? Well, they're the most expensive in the world, right? Unlimited data plans are common in other countries. Tourists are baffled. Canada is so far behind. I actually I come from Scotland, and in Scotland most of the phone contracts are unlimited data. I've actually kept my other um, cell phone provider because it, it um, does have unlimited in Canada and the U.S. Now Canada is slowly catching up. Rogers becoming the first of the big three providers to offer an unlimited data package. Increasingly customers have been uh, telling us that uh, data overage and uh, worry-free wireless is really critical to their ability to use wireless services. Of course, there's a catch with the Rogers plan. After 10 gigabytes of high-speed data, customers will be shifted to the slow lane, unlimited surfing, but at reduced speeds. After you hit your, ironically, data cap, uh, you're being throttled from LTE to 3G, which significantly reduces the speed of your connection and what you can actually do with your phone. Consumer advocacy group Open Media questioning the timing of Rogers' announcement, pointing out it comes amid a CRTC review of the wireless market. I think that they, they want to be able to pat themselves on the back and show the CRTC that they've done the thing. Uh, and I think that they're also scared of the prospect of uh, the review resulting in new providers coming into the market and fostering actual competition. We asked TELUS and Bell if they'll match Rogers, but no one from either phone company called us back. For Kyle Chang, the new Rogers plan, which starts at $75 per month, is no bargain. I mean, you're in the U.S. right now, I mean, you get about 10 gigs or so for $50 or so. I mean, it's still not competitive. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. All right. So, yeah, some important questions. How competitive are these prices? What are the strings attached? 
Now, Bell has since indicated they will follow suit. It's unclear whether TELUS will. And, of course, Freedom Mobile has been uh, offering more or less this kind of a service for some time. Well, joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome the program, uh, Shruti Shakar, who is a reporter at Mobile Syrup, has been following this. Shruti, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this it is an interesting development. I guess people are wondering, um, you know, again, what, what catches are there, what strings are attached, how significant is this? But it, it does represent potentially a, a big development in the market, doesn't it? A hundred percent. You're right. It, it really does um, create this sort of disruption in the market, considering that we've never really had these type of prices for the amount of data that we're get, getting. And, you know, as you reported earlier, um, as Global News has reported earlier, too, you know, there is a cap. There is going to be throttling once you reach that cap. But if we really are looking at it from, like, the grand scheme of things, like, from the outside perspective, in Canada, we don't have a lot of data for cheap prices. It's it's exorbitantly priced to get any amount of data that's more than, you know, 5 gigabytes, 6 gigabytes, 10 gigabytes. So to have... $75 for 10 gigabytes by a national carrier is pretty big. And the fact that Bell is sort of upping its game and doing the same thing. And just to note, yes, actually, TELUS also launched a promo last night. Um, very similar, uh, saying that it's going to have 10 gigabytes for $75 with an added 5 gigabytes of data onto that. So that's actually 15 gigabytes of data for $75. Interesting. So this is, this is, a, this is a war right now. <laughs> well, and, and hopefully it is, because I think maybe the consumers uh, ultimately benefit if that is indeed the case. But why has it been so expensive to offer data for cheaper prices? I mean, is, is there anything to the argument that Canada's just, you know, too big, that it's too costly to build this infrastructure? Or, or can we point a finger at these, these big companies? Well, you, the, the fact of the matter is it, it does cost a lot of money to build infrastructure, from, for, at least from my knowledge. I know that these, um, these companies are uh, shelling out you know, millions, if not billions of dollars just on infrastructure to get that spectrum, to get that, uh, the quality speeds, the quality, uh, network, you know, standard that, that other countries are upholding to. Um, but the fact of the matter is we also have, you know, we have a smaller population in a, in a large amount of space. So you have, you know, this very vast amount of space, but not enough people to cover that space. So, you know, trying to build a network so that it not only the people in the north get connection, but also people in the cities get connection, it can, it can get costly. And so I think part of that, that expense comes from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, of course, like these carriers are always going to try and compete against each other and, and, and jack up those prices. Right. And, and I, I mean, it's when you have that, that sort of big three that, yes, there's competition, but they can also settle into a comfort zone that, you know, once they're comfortable with what each other are offering, it just it settles in uh, at exactly. those prices. Right. And, and there, I think there's often a reluctance to to spark any kind of a price war. A hundred percent. And, you know, just going back to, again, just what open media has said, um, this really does come at a very interesting time because, as Open Media said, the CRTC did launch a review in February to sort of look at the wireless, um, you know, scene in Canada. Is it a are, are carriers giving affordable options? Are there it, should they be looking at different options for Canadians? And so that hearing is actually going to be taking place in January in Ottawa. And you know, in the middle of all of this, now Rogers has come out and said, "Hey, we're offering seventy five dollars for ten gigabytes of data." 
basically being like, we're giving you an affordable option. And, yeah. and I think that's kind of interesting to, to see that that's happening right now. Yeah, I think the timing's interesting. But, I mean, in broader sense, too, I mean, there's, you know, the changes in the marketplace. I mean, we're getting closer, of course, to the world of 5G. But, I mean, even now, it's, there's, you know, we're increasingly in a streaming world. And, and so people are using their devices to stream music, stream other content. That takes up data. So there, there is a real demand for this, it would seem. A hundred percent. And, you know, I did speak with the Rogers as president of wireless services, and he was saying to me that the average consumer, and I'm talking super average consumer of data, is consuming about three gigabytes of data. I don't really know if I uh, match that amount. Like, I think I have, I believe I have eight gigabytes of data right now. And I, if I'm pretty sure I, I reach that total every month mm-hmm. um, and that and that's because I'm streaming on YouTube or I'm going on Netflix um, and I'm watching stuff and, and I think part of it too is that when you have so much data you don't pay attention to the fact that you have so much data you kind of take advantage of that concept and so people are, aren't aware that oh I have 10 gigabytes of data uh, you know I'm just going to watch Netflix I'm just going to watch YouTube um, but just going back to the point that you were saying with 5G part of the reason why Rogers even initiated its its plans is because they wanted to sort of uh, prepare themselves for 5G. Now, why we don't have that network right now, but they're saying that they want to be ready for when that network is available. So God knows, maybe when 5G really comes, we might have even more expensive plans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. Well, uh, more details again, mobilesyrup.com. Shruti, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. All right. That is uh, Shruti Shikar with uh, MobileSyrup.com. Follows the Canadian tech industry, the mobile, or rather the uh, telecom industry. So, yeah, it's, it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out, how meaningful this change is, what the CRTC makes of it. Of course, they're going through this review. And are people going to be frustrated once they start hitting these, these throttles? So there's a question of what you're paying, what you're getting, and then, of course, the quality of what you're getting. This next story has, has been, I think, yet, yet another indictment of how we, we fail our veterans and how, in particular, our political leadership fails our veterans. Uh, it certainly should outrage Canadians that, that any veteran, anyone who has served this country, would find themselves without a roof over their heads, would find themselves living on the street. So an effort to deal with, to end veteran homelessness would seem to be a laudable goal. Uh, the last 24 hours or so on this issue, though, has, has been a weird series of events. Because initially today, the story was that a, a motion from a liberal backbench MP, a motion calling on veteran homelessness to be ended by 2025, was expected to get all party support, instead uh, had died without a vote. Now, the conservatives said they wanted more time to study the issue. Uh, the Liberals wanted to end the debate and call a vote, and that seemed to mark uh, an end to this effort until today. Conservative MP Karen Vecchio rose in the House to say that she supports the motion and sought unanimous consent on the motion. So it has gone from apparently being dead to now passing unanimously. So an odd series of events may be a positive step in the right direction. But joining us to talk about everything that's happened on this fall, we're pleased to welcome the program uh, here today, Abigail Beeman, Ottawa-based correspondent with Global National. Abigail, thanks for making some time for us here. Absolutely. Good afternoon. So you might get a bit of whiplash trying to follow this this story. So Absolutely, yes. the motion has now passed then. 
That's right. So as of this morning, uh, as you said, Conservative Karen Vecchio uh, stood in the House of Commons and uh, she put it forward at asking for unanimous consent, uh, which she got. She referenced uh, an angry tweet in and saying that, you know, the Conservatives always supported this motion. Uh, a lot of tweets flew after we uh, published the story yesterday about how exactly this died, which was that same MP, Conservative Karen Vecchio, uh, wouldn't vote on it or wouldn't move to a vote saying that she wanted more time to study the issue. She accused the Liberals of playing politics. The Liberals basically said the same thing right back at the Conservatives. And, of course, what's frustrating about all this at the end of the day is the veterans, who are the important part of this story, who don't really care about the ins and outs of House process, nor do uh, most Canadians, the the degree at which this went back and forth. But now we have this motion passed, uh, and the important part is is what's in that motion, which is calling for an end to to veteran homelessness by 2025. Uh, And something that struck me as I've been covering this is that all the advocates say this really is a solvable problem. We really can get to the bottom of it. Yeah, we're going to speak with the Royal Canadian Legion coming up in a little bit here. I mean, their initial reaction was uh, shock and dismay at what had happened, uh, which, which gives an indication of how it seemed to catch everybody off guard uh, before getting back on track. Um, which, well, right, because right. They, the, the liberal uh, backbencher really believed that he had all parties support something um, unusual at the, or which doesn't happen very often, but at his news conference with uh, the Legion was there and other groups, advocate groups were there. Uh, there were MPs standing beside him from the Conservatives and from the NDP. So it was really looking like there was going to be all party support here for something quite simple that, you know, of course, all parties agree with. Right. And again, yeah, it's not a, a, a bill or a piece of legislation that mandates anything, but uh, it, it exactly. is, I think, an important uh, show of support from the House of Commons. So t- tell us a bit more about this motion then. Right. So the motion has three parts. It calls for an end to veteran homelessness by 2025. It calls for an actual plan to put that in place, uh, co-led by the ministers responsible. So the veterans minister, of course, and then also the, the minister for uh, uh, families at, at where housing falls into as well. So a plan in place by next year, 2020. And the third piece is quite interesting. Uh, it's asking the Canadian government to look south of the border at uh, the United States, where they have had a very successful program uh, uh, that it, it has to do with housing. The uh, number of homes in that country because of so um, the motion is calling for us to look at what our neighbors are doing south of the border and whether we could apply that here. Yeah, that, that housing voucher program. Uh, so I guess then now that this has been accepted unanimously is is the next step then to, to study this more? Uh, well, there has been a lot of study done on the issue. Of course, yes, specifically studying and looking at the United States would come next. But important to note as well, we are very close to the end of session. And from the summer, we're likely to go right into an election campaign. So what you're more likely to see is this to become an election issue uh, for one or more parties uh, as to what they would do. Because, of course, uh, this motion has passed, but uh, we'll see by 2020 and 2025 uh, who's in power. Yes, indeed. All right, Abigail, thanks so much for the update. Much more, of course, globalnews.ca. But uh, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Thanks for having me. All right. Abigail Beeman, who's been following this story, Ottawa-based correspondent with Global National. A lot of finger pointing as to, you know, who is to blame for this this motion suddenly collapsing after it appeared to have all party support and and credit to everybody involved for realizing that somebody had screwed up and that it didn't have to be that way. 
So the motion was brought back to life today and did pass unanimously. So, yes, this is an important issue. We're talking about, the estimates vary, 3,000 to 5,000 or so. Veterans who have served this country who are homeless. And it is, as many experts have said, uh, a solvable problem. The broader issue of homelessness is a much bigger challenge. But to at least specifically focus on veterans, it is something that we can do. And who wouldn't support something like this? So, look, it, I don't think it would be fair to, to point fingers at any party or any politician to say, now you don't care about veterans or homeless veterans specifically. And hopefully we don't see that now going forward. This isn't the kind of thing that should ever be a, you know, a political football. The motion passed. The House has expressed a, a willingness to address this. Now it's time to see some, some real action. All right, uh, coming up in a few minutes, we're going to hear from the Royal Canadian Legion, and they've been one of the organizations in Canada really pushing for this, really supportive of this private member's motion. And as I noted with, with Abigail, the Royal Canadian Legion was really quite upset by the developments this week, where it appeared as though this motion had gone from full support uh, to, to toast. Now, it's now been uh, resuscitated, resurrected. It's been uh, accepted unanimously by the House. So, I mean, you know, the liberals are blaming the conservatives for blocking this from a vote. The conservatives are blaming the the liberals for not letting them speak to this or just suddenly out of nowhere finding an appetite after four years to try to tackle this problem. So they're blaming each other and maybe we could blame all of them. This shouldn't get bogged down in politics. So it was unfortunate to see this motion. Uh, fallen by the wayside, but it was at least a relief to see that everybody came to their senses and the motion was resurrected and unanimously approved by the House. But obviously now the hard part begins, actually tackling this program, actually following through on this motion, which acknowledges and accepts that this is something we need to do something about and that it is a solvable problem. So what needs to happen now? Joining us uh, for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome in the program, Ray McInnes, who is Director of Veteran Services at Dominion Command with the Royal Canadian Legion, one of the groups that's really been pushing uh, for some action on this issue. Ray, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me this afternoon. Uh, yeah, the the initial reaction after the developments this week uh, from the Legion was shock and dismay that this, this could have gone sideways. I don't know exactly what happened, but I guess your reaction now that everybody seems to have come to their senses. Well, we're all very pleased today, and I'm glad they came to their senses, and uh, they had a point of order. And so all is good on our front uh, for the time being, and now the hard work begins. Indeed. Why, why is this um, an issue that the Legion is, is really focused on? I mean, the importance of, of you know, helping all of those who have served our country, but especially those who find themselves dealing with homelessness. Well, Rob, we've been around a long time, since 1926, and we've had a service bureau and just renamed ourselves Veteran Services the more, to be more in tune with uh, today's younger veteran. But at the same time, we've been providing uh, benevolent assistance to people in financial need since 1926. In 2010, uh, Ontario Command of the Legion brought forward the program for Homeless Veterans Program, Leave the Streets Behind. We adopted it at convention in 2012 when we rolled it out across the country. So it's, uh, we had an initial forum on homeless, uh, uh, homeless Veterans Forum in 2015 here at Legion House where we brought together uh, a lot of organizations 
that uh, are in the service industry looking after uh, homeless in general, and we learned a lot from them. And uh, now we're on, you know, each command, if if there's a homeless veteran who requires any assistance, they can contact the command service officer. Uh, It's more robust in some provinces than others, but we're trying to uh, go out. And, uh, you know, we know it's a very serious issue because the problem is growing. And, uh, you know, planning is one thing, but it's time for action. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I suppose every, every story is different. Every person's experience is, is somewhat different. But I think people struggle to understand, Ray, how this, how this could happen. You know, that, that somebody who has served this country, who served in the military, would find themselves living on the street. How does, how does something like that happen? Well, we have not uh, completed a survey, or we don't ask that question really on intake. Uh, but we're there to provide a financial security uh, when it's required. But there's a lot of different reasons. Uh, transition challenges uh, when they leave the, uh, the military going in the civilian community. We have people who lived on uh, bases and wings their entire life, living in uh, single quarters if they were single. And now they're stepping out and uh, living in a civilian community where they may not have all the skill sets to, uh, you know, uh, or have the advantage of being married and uh, doing all that. But uh, uh, the, skill, the challenge of life skills is very indeed a problem. And so it's not only throwing money. We definitely need a plan. We need a plan for affordable housing. We need some life skills uh, programming to teach people how to uh, live in a community and uh, take care of themselves. And of course, the affordable housing is is the big part. Yeah, I think maybe the real question is, how do we let it happen? Why do we let it happen, right? I mean, why why are we just now getting around to hopefully coming up with some sort of a, a federal action plan on this? Well, at least, at least they, they have been writing from all parties now to take action. Uh, we've been looking at this problem, like I said, from 2010. Uh, we've been asking for, we've been promised a strategy by Federal Affairs Canada since 20, at least 2016, and we've not seen that strategy. Uh, so much so that this year, uh, early January, we sent out uh, what we developed uh, by our homeless veterans representative, a guideline for our commands. We, uh, that was endorsed by our executive council in April, and we forwarded that out across uh, the Legion commands across the country. And now we're looking at uh, developing our own strategy, and hopefully we'll have that done by, uh, by November. But there's many reasons why people... Every, every case is individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's different reasons. It could be when uh, the transition piece. It could be when they uh, leave the military. It could be uh, a separation or a divorce. Uh, it could be a traumatic uh, incident or accident where someone may uh, lose their family uh, in, a, in an accident. And, you know, there's, there's just every, every case is individual. Yeah. But, but you think this is doable, that, that this kind of a, a timeline laid out by this motion, that we, we can tackle the problem, we can fix this problem? We can definitely do that if we uh, have everybody working together. And as I mentioned in our press uh, conference the other day, it's not just a federal government uh, problem. If we have federal government, we have provincial, we have municipal, we have service organizations, veterans organizations. I think it's, uh, you know, uh, holistic, all-encompassing. We get everybody on board. And, uh, you know, as uh, Tim Richter said from the uh, Alliance and Homelessness in his uh, comments, uh, you know, it's a doable situation. Uh, if we want to follow what the Americans are doing, like was uh, uh, Neil Harris had mentioned, but the affordable uh, housing is the issue. Uh, but we need a clear plan. So, you know, evidence-based actions. We need mm-hmm. to execute all these actions across the country. Yeah, and so part of this this motion is to study, I guess, what's kind of a, a voucher program that exists in the U.S. for veterans. What, what do you know about that? Uh, uh, to be honest with you, I don't know too much about it, but yeah. anything that's going to uh, affordable ho- housing would be uh, great. That's the biggest issue in this country. Uh, you know, we 
you know, like I said, we've been studying it a long time. Governments have put a lot of money into not just veterans' homelessness, but studying uh, homelessness in this country since uh, 2008. Uh, it's been, uh, you know, so between us, other countries, share those experiences. Uh, there's knowledge there, but we got to uh, continue to go out and look for it and then take it to action. But affordable housing is a huge piece. And if you look at different parts of the country, of course, other problems is when you look at Vancouver, Toronto, uh, even Calgary, uh, it's not, uh, it's, you know, housing is expensive. So we've got to look at affordable housing and people off the street. Make sure the housing first uh, works, initiative works. So we've got to get them off the street. And then if there are any other problems, get those uh, completed, uh, fixed up. And then, uh, you know, the Life Skills Program is huge as well and uh, get them to be viable members of the community as they should be. Well, and there was a project um, that the Calgary's been exploring, and I think uh, we're moving forward on it. It's it's specifically for homeless veterans, and uh, so it involves provide. It's kind of almost like a village, I guess, of of these uh, tiny homes uh, for homeless veterans. So it's a unique kind of project that Calgary's looking at. There have been some different groups involved in that. I mean, is is that the kind of approach we need to to have different groups in different communities? You know, trying these these different approaches. Definitely, that's all part of uh, everyone in a in a community getting together to to assist. Whether it's um, you know the tiny homes or affordable housing, in the way of you know another thought that was mentioned to me the other day uh, was when people are developing new suburbs. You have these big contracting uh, uh, construction companies building uh, you know homes, or you're building a whole village if you want to call it a village. Uh, mm-hmm. So built into that should be some type of affordable housing so that uh, homeless veterans can uh, be part of the community and see what other people like. If you're, you know, it's not a, uh, you know, we're not handing out anything. It's just part of you're down on your luck and you want to get back into a community. Well, if you're living in a community where there's people that are getting up, going to work every day, you'll get up and do something every day. So I think it's important that uh, everyone takes a, a look at uh, how we can assist. Yeah, and it's got to involve everybody. I mean, I, I think for too long we've sort of left it to groups like yours to, to deal with the situation, which seems unfair. But, I mean, moving forward, not that we should exclude the Legion or other groups. Right? It's, it's got to involve everybody, doesn't it? I d- definitely so. Uh, everyone has a, uh, a place to play here, and uh, there's enough going. We just need a dedicated plan. We want to see if there's... Uh, you know, it's not just the money. The, the support issue is huge. Uh, so, and I can't I cannot overemphasize that enough. Uh, affordable housing, the supports, we just got to get them, uh, you know, uh, back in tune to being part of that community. And it's not just, uh, you know, you know, we're looking after veterans homelessness, and that's where our money goes on from the uh, poppy fund. Uh, but... Uh, you know, it's homelessness in general in this country. You know, for a country like Canada, we should be ashamed that we have so many uh, homeless people. Absolutely. Well, let's uh, hope that some good comes of this, uh, these developments this week in, in Ottawa. Much more at legion.ca. Ray, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. All right. That's Ray McInnes, Director of Veteran Services at Dominion Command, part of the Royal Canadian Legion. 974-8255 is the number. Let's uh, get Jeremy in here. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Hey, Rob, I'm actually really sick to death and tired of politicians claiming that they care about vets. They've been left out to dry for years. I got a, had a grandfather, three uncles, and a buddy that served, and uh, I, know, I know firsthand. I mean, they just, like, I mean, how many ministers of Veterans Affairs have there been since that meathead took uh, office in 2015? I mean, it just goes to show you keep shuffling people around. It's just that they have an indifference to it. 
And it's not just us. Look what happened in the States and John Stewart Congress. He had to go there and berate them just to get them to continue the benefits for the 9-11 uh, responders. Yeah. By the way, it's exactly a 9 minute and 11 second clip on on uh, YouTube. And someone needs to, like him, needs to, to hold our government accountable for the lack of respect and just disregard for vets. It's absolutely sickening. And I'm, I'll tell you, Rob, I'm just absolutely sick of politicians going off about it to make themselves look good because that's all they're doing. They just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, make themselves look good, and nothing gets done. That's what it feels like, Jeremy. I appreciate the phone call. Let's hope that maybe this time is different. But uh, as Jeremy said, there's, there's reason for pessimism. Well, no doubt that technology represents a number of challenges when it comes to privacy. That sure, it can be handy to use technology to locate your phone or maybe locate your kids. But it's pretty easy to see how that could be used for more sinister purposes. Uh, two new reports of this week from Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto. Look at the laws and the ecosystem around so-called stalkerware. Where these kinds of apps and, and software that are readily available uh, can be used for those more dangerous purposes. Where abusers, for example can use this technology to track their former partners and make a dangerous situation all the more dangerous. So what do our laws uh, say about all of this? Do we need to be enforcing those laws against those who are using this technology for those purposes and to better protect the victims? More at citizenlab.ca, but joining us to talk more about these reports, very pleased to welcome to the program Christopher Parsons, who's a senior research associate at Citizen Lab, part of the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Christopher, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, stalkerware is, is the term that's that's been given to describe, I guess, a, a number of different kinds of apps that are essentially tracking apps. What are these apps that we're talking about here, first of all, though? Yeah, so your listeners may be more familiar with uh, spyware. So this is the sort of software that's used to track your child or your employer might install on your devices, um, or even that you might have on, a, on a, one of your own phones to track your lost device. Mm-hmm. These, this software can be repurposed and uh, deliberately used to facilitate uh, intimate partner abuse, harassment, and, and other inappropriate activities. And so when we see these ostensibly legitimate applications, these sensibly legitimate forms of spyware uh, used for inappropriate purposes. We've termed it stalkerware. And there's also cases where um, you have stalkerware software that is used um, also for employee tracking, also for child monitoring. And it's, the capabilities are pretty profound. So it's everything from monitoring text messages to geolocation to turning on the camera and, and the mic uh, to seeing all the pictures that you take all your WhatsApp conversations, and on and on and on and on and on. So it's really powerful software that can be used for really harmful purposes. Right. And, yeah, and and as you say, I mean, people may be familiar with a lot of these or at least maybe the intended purposes of some of these to track your own phone, maybe keep tabs on your children. But is it true, though, that that some of these companies are actually marketing these these apps as a way of of keeping track of, of intimate partners? Yes, that's absolutely the case. So in our study, we looked at uh, eight separate applications that were the most popular applications of their type in Canada. And six of eight of them 
um, had explicit marketing language that it could be used to track or target a spouse or current or former partner. And other academic research done by um, other academics has shown that if you go to many of these companies' websites and you contact their customer support units and say, hey, I want to figure out if my partner's having an affair, will your software help? And in almost every single case, the companies were, oh, of course we can help you with that, and here's how you install it. Wow. Uh, so you talk about the ways in which uh, people are being tracked. I mean, one is obviously location to use GPS to figure out where someone else is. But they're, they're, it really runs the gamut. And as you say, in, into some pretty invasive territory where potentially microphones or cameras could even be activated. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's basically um, they, they act as comprehensive surveillance tools when the software is turned on. It, it, the software turns your phone into a predator in your pocket. Um, and one of the, the equally concerning things is in situations where an abuser can't access their, the targeted person's uh, mobile device to install the software, sometimes in a shared custody situation, what will happen is the child will have the software installed, and then the abuser will monitor the former partner through the child's device. And so it can be really pernicious and not just target the individual who, who's the primary target, but even family members who are close uh, to them. So it does still require access to, to the physical device. Yeah, there's two different ways that it operates. So in the case of Android in particular, it tends to require physical access to a device. And so you might get up to use the bathroom or something like that, or or someone may have obtained your passcode, or if you're using a biometric to log in, they might secretly press your phone to uh, your finger while you're asleep. And then it takes about two minutes to install. In the case of iOS, it's a little bit different. So if you're using um, a contemporary Apple device that has the most recent security updates you can possibly receive from Apple, there aren't any applications we found that could be directly installed on the phone. However, if an abuser can obtain uh, a targeted person's iCloud password and or um, their two-factor authentication information, so that's the six-digit code that'll sometimes show up um, when you're logging in from a different uh, location, they can give that information to a stalker provider, and many of the providers will then go into an iCloud um, drive, pull out the backups that your phone or your iPad or your, your Mac has been putting there, and then provide all that information um, to, the, uh, to the stalker. Do, know, do we know the extent to which this sort of thing might be happening or the extent to which um, you know, abusers are, are making use of, of this technology to track their former partners? We know that about 98% of cases in Canada, um, stalking does involve technology, and in 50-plus percent of cases, mobile technologies are used. Now, that isn't to say that 90% of the time or more, it's stalkware in particular. Um, Statistics aren't that granular. It's actually an area where more work is needed. But we do know from other researchers that uh, these applications are downloaded hundreds of thousands of times uh, across across the world, and that the applications we looked at were most commonly were most commonly used in North America. I think as people hear about this, or you hear about you know someone using that the, those kind of applications in such a way, it, it sounds like it ought to be illegal. It sounds like people should have some kind of legal protection from that sort of surveillance. But, but what do our laws have to say about this? So there are a, a long range of laws that we argue uh, the software violates. So um, there, we released two reports. One is sort of a holistic assessment of the software ecosystem, and another is a deep dive into criminal, civil, regulatory, and international law to figure out how exactly this stuff is illegal in Canada or, or what suits can be brought. And it works out that it's very, very problematic. So uh, if you're an individual using this against someone else, you could violate um, wiretap law, 
You could um, be subject to civil lawsuits as a result. Um, the companies that are producing this are potentially subject to criminal law. They might uh, be suitable targets for civil suits. Even the CRTC, um, our, uh, our telecommunications regulator, might have a role in this because as part of um, Canada's anti-spam legislation, they have targeted persons who have developed this sort of software in Canada. So there's a large number of potential actors in the judicial system that could take part. The issue is they're not taking part in a coordinated and comprehensive way to really address the problem. So the law is there. It's not as though we lack the legal tools to deal with this. It's it's just more about that, that we're not enforcing these laws at the moment. Yeah, I think we're not enforcing it. Some of it's likely due to education. We know the police forces are often um, challenged mm-hmm. in their ability to investigate digital crimes. We know that there's a huge number of crimes, of course, the justice system has to deal with on a daily basis. Our big argument is that the tools are here And it may be possible that that certain prosecutors or crown attorneys didn't fully appreciate what could be done. And now they've got 200 pages of legal theory that they can pick up and they can use at any moment. And if they're not using it, they certainly can't claim ignorance at this point. I suppose the challenge in a lot of cases, too, is that people may not know that that they're being victimized in this way. That's exactly a pretty serious problem. Um, and, And we note in both of the reports that we've published that is the, the signs that targeted persons um, may experience are their stalker knowing way more information than they should, or in some cases even messages being sent from their phone that they didn't send, or being unable to access certain websites, um, or the person who's uh, tracking them sort of showing up at random and weird places that they shouldn't know to show up to. And so there's a bunch of conditional signs that might reveal this, and when that comes up, uh, we suggest that the, the persons who are targeted, rather than actually going on the phone necessarily and trying to figure out if it's on the phone themselves, if they're really concerned, we strongly suggest they go to a frontline support worker who deals with intimate partner violence. We say that because the academic literature showcases that when people try to remove themselves from the course of control of an abuser, that's often when uh, violence occurs or becomes uh, more prominent in, in the relationship. And so making a phone call on a friend's device or a, a laptop at work that isn't infected so that you can get the information you need to set up that meeting. And then when you have the meeting with, uh, with that support worker, don't even necessarily bring the phone with you, uh, that initial visit so that you can develop a safety plan and uh, not put yourself in more jeopardy in the process of trying to get out of an illegal and dangerous situation. Yeah, very important points. Well, people can read more about this research. It's up at citizenlab.ca. Christopher, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you so much. There you go. That's Christopher Parsons, Senior Research Associate of the Citizen Lab, part of the University of Toronto's Monk School of uh, Global Affairs and Public Policy, citizenlab.ca. one of the areas of contention around cannabis legalization was how we were going to deal with cannabis impaired driving. Obviously, legalization didn't mean we were inventing the drug and cannabis impaired driving is clearly not a problem that that came into existence as of October of last year. But I think, you know, reasonable people who maybe didn't object to to legalization per se, but but expected then that the government have more of a plan in place for dealing with this side of it. 
that fine. If someone wants to, to get high, that's, that's their problem. If they're going to get behind the wheel, it then potentially becomes my problem. So I think the government needed to reassure Canadians that they were going to address this, this potential problem. Uh, so we do now have more clearly established thresholds when it comes to blood THC levels. But under our laws, anyone with blood THC levels between 2 and 5 nanograms per milliliter, liable of a fine of up to $1,000, drivers with over 5 nanograms face a minimum of a $1,000 fine and potentially up to 10 years in prison. So these are pretty meaningful penalties. And I think it was a way, again, of signaling to the public that we were going to take this seriously. But did we take it too seriously? Are these laws too strict? Have we set the level too low? And that's a big question, because if someone's not impaired, it seems awfully unfair to then accuse them, to charge them with being impaired. So some new research out of UBC, published in the journal Addiction, finds that there is no link between car crashes and low levels of THC. Well, joining us to talk more about the findings, the implications, very pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Jeffrey Brubaker. He's an associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at UBC. He's an ER doc himself, also the principal investigator on this five-year study, which investigated all of this. Dr. Brubaker, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Happy to be here. Talk a bit about why it's it's an important question to to understand. I mean, I suppose it's obvious in, in some respects. We're talking about the safety of our roads, but what, what what do we need to learn here? Well, I mean, I guess it's it's common sense. We don't want people driving when they're impaired by by any substance. But for cannabis in particular, there's been a push to set um, THC levels that are associated that you know would uh, prohibit someone from driving. But the data on that has been relatively sparse. So we, we looked at that um, in, in more detail in a study here from British Columbia. And, and how do you study a question like this? Well, what, what we did is we uh, studied drivers who came to a British Columbia trauma center after a crash, and they had blood work done as part of routine clinical care, so the doctors thought they needed blood testing done. Um, we took leftover blood and analyzed that at the British Columbia Provincial Toxicology Center. Uh, we measured THC, which is the active ingredient in cannabis. We also measured alcohol, uh, recreational drugs like cocaine and amphetamines, and sedating medications like uh, sleeping pills. And then we analyzed the corresponding police reports to determine which drivers contributed to the crash and which were innocently involved. And we compared the risk of crashing in drivers who tested positive for drugs compared to those who tested negative. Um, our, our, main, our main finding there was we found that drivers with low levels of THC, that's under 5 nanograms per mil, really didn't have an increase in crash risk. They were the same as drivers who hadn't used anything. Um, for drivers with higher THC levels above 5 nanograms, there was a moderately increased risk. We found a 74% increase. But this was not statistically significant, meaning it could have been due to chance. Hmm. And there were pretty small numbers. We only we, we studied a total of, uh, of over 1,800 drivers who we could assign responsibility to, and there were only 20 drivers in that group that had THC above five. So relatively small numbers, which might be why we couldn't find a definitive answer. That's interesting. Now, how, do, how does that compare yeah. and contrast then with, with alcohol and the blood alcohol level of, of some of these drivers? Yeah, well, 
so when we studied alcohol, we found what everybody who studies alcohol find, and that is a large increase. So drivers with alcohol above the legal limit had a six times increase in crash risk, not 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 a fraction of a, of, I mean, a, a huge increased crash risk, much, much higher than what we found with the other medications. I mean, we've we've kind of yeah. modeled our approach to dealing with with THC impairments in a similar way to how we deal with alcohol impairment. And I suppose one could argue that that impaired driving is impaired driving, regardless of the source. But do, do we need to approach THC in in a different way at all? Then, do you think? Well, it's it's incredibly complicated with THC compared to with with alcohol because alcohol is easy to measure, and police are pretty good at detecting alcohol. Yeah. And, and levels correspond well with impairment, and that's just not the case with cannabis. It's hard for police to detect it. It's hard to measure. The, the, the per se limits are based on blood tests, not a breathalyzer. Um, and people can develop tolerance. If you're a habitual user that uses every day, uh, small levels of THC are probably not going to impair you to the, to the extent that an occasional user would be impaired. Um, it's just way more complicated. I suppose that maybe we have a situation now in in Canada where we've set those levels in the wrong spot. Is it possible then that we're going to end up charging drivers as being impaired when maybe they're not, medically speaking, actually impaired? I mean, I, I think that's that's a concern to be cleared before police can get a blood test. They have to have some evidence of impairment. So they can't do it just randomly on on anybody. But I, I think our findings do suggest that those levels might be that the per se levels might be too low. And maybe maybe we should only have the higher range. There are specific penalties for people with uh, THC above five nanograms per mil. And maybe the lower levels, maybe those lower per se levels should be uh, removed. Yeah, and I get there's a sentiment out there that maybe we should just err on the side of caution, that uh, it, it's better to have completely sober drivers. We don't want to be sending any kind of message that it's okay to use cannabis and drive. I mean, how, how do we balance all of that from, from a public health perspective? Incredibly difficult problem, and you're absolutely right. If you set lower levels, that, that sends a pretty clear message. You have to separate uh, cannabis use from driving. So from that point of view, that makes sense. Um, the problem is that many people who are habitual users can walk around with these levels of two or three nanograms per mil, even a day or several days after they last used. So you have to balance it with that. It really comes down to um, public. It's a public decision. It's a political decision. Um, where, where, whether we want to err on the side of caution and set really low THC levels or whether we want to look more at, at the risk involved. But I think our findings are reassuring in that there are relatively few drivers with the higher, with the higher THC levels. Um, and this was all data that was collected pre-legalization. That might change going forward, but relatively few drivers. And the, even drivers with the higher THC had a much smaller risk than what we see with alcohol. So I think, you know, we do have a little bit of room to proceed slowly. Uh, we don't have to overreact. Well, it's good to know. Now, I, I guess you're still continuing to collect uh, blood from, from drivers involved in, in car crashes, you and the other researchers. What, what more do you hope to learn from this? Well, I'd like to get a bit better idea of the estimate of, of the risk at higher levels. I think that's the main thing that I'd like to find. Um, we're also going to be collecting 
the prevalence of THC use before and after legalization. So we'll see whether it went up and how much it went up, which I think will also be interesting. But the main thing is, um, can we get a better estimate of the risk at higher THC levels? All right. Fascinating stuff. Dr. Brubaker, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you. You're more than welcome. All right, there you go. That's uh, Jeffrey Brubaker, Associate Professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the UBC, the principal investigator on this study. Finds maybe our, our legal THC impairment levels are too low. That people at this level aren't impaired. That there's no correlation between that level and any vehicle crashes. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.